It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 305 for August 12th, 2012. This week, webmail that works from Microsoft. How to speed up a slow computer, part one. Think, an IBM download for your tablet or computer. And in short circuits, Google pays a small fine to close a privacy case. Surface 2, is it in the works? And curiosity, Earth to Mars, one minute late. You know, I suppose, because I have made it abundantly clear over the years that I am no fan of webmail. I find the interfaces clunky, I find the features primitive, but still, I use Gmail at least occasionally. It is a handy repository that receives mail from all of my various accounts and stores the messages so they're available from anywhere. And this same concept is handy when I'm traveling, but for daily use, not a chance. Now, however, Microsoft has replaced Hotmail, which was even worse than Gmail, with Outlook.com. It's part of Microsoft's live offerings. It's been available for just a week now, but it looks a lot like the mail application that comes with Windows 8. Because I haven't installed my primary email application on Windows 8 partitions yet, when I need to send or receive messages while running the new operating system, my choices are the mail app that comes with Windows 8 or Gmail. It's been an easy choice so far. And I should mention that I'm also not particularly a fan of Outlook. So it would seem a no-brainer that I wouldn't be impressed much by webmail with the name Outlook. That may seem to be the expected answer, but I've spent just enough time with Outlook.com to start being impressed. If you have an existing Hotmail account, and I was required to have one of those to access certain Microsoft technical websites, then you can convert the address to Live.com or Outlook.com. The process does seem to have a little bit of a bug, though. When I received the security reminder from Microsoft, the message said I could click one link to acknowledge the change, but there was no link present. Or I could click another link to cancel the change. Nothing there, either. Apparently, though, clicking to confirm, which I always counsel against anyway, isn't required because the system told me in a follow-up message that the address is now ready to use and messages sent to my new at Outlook.com address will work as expected. And indeed, that was the case. The trouble with Gmail is that it's essentially the same service it was at the beginning several years ago. Things change fast around the Internet. You may have noticed that. The interface has changed considerably, and there have been a few features added, but if you take into account the mobility of today's computer users and the ability to receive mail on handheld devices... Well, Gmail just looks out of date. This actually isn't an important feature to me because I don't own a smartphone. Having recently upgraded my 15-year-old phone to technology that's only about five years out of date, I don't have plans to change that. But if I spent more time traveling and less time in front of various computers from which I can easily check email at any time, well, then the ability to read email on a mobile device would be appealing. 
Microsoft's Outlook.com service is a new design. The interface is clean, and Microsoft says it is concentrating on providing excellent mobile experience. Outlook.com works with the built-in Mail app on Windows 7 phones, and Microsoft is working for an app for Android. And how about iPhone? <laughs> Don't hold your breath. I don't see any ads, but I do see a space where ads could appear, and undoubtedly will. Microsoft says the ads will be based on information you provide in your profile and not on the content of messages. Everybody knows that Google doesn't really read all of your messages, but the system does scan those messages to seek out words so that it can serve all those delightful ads at the top of the message panel and on the right side of all messages. Ever open the spam box? There is always, always an ad for a spam recipe. Does anybody ever really click those? What Google does isn't an invasion of privacy. They provide a service without charge, and it's a service that works well. Payment comes from advertisers, and users should understand that going in. Still, I find the ads distracting, and if Microsoft is willing to provide a service that's easier to use, looks better, and has no ads, well, the choice is an easy one. In fact, even if the ads come back, the choice might be an easy one. Microsoft will need to monetize Outlook.com someday, and that might include ads or a monthly fee, or maybe, as some services have done, a small fee for those who don't want ads, and ads for those who don't want a small fee. One of the most annoying aspects of Google applications is that within any given browser, they must all use the same credentials. Sometimes I need to log on to Google AdWords or other Google services using credentials other than the ones I'm logged in with. And that creates a real headache. If Outlook.com can replace Gmail, that will reduce my points of frustration by one. Outlook.com will sort some of your messages into virtual folders if you want. These aren't real folders. The messages instead are just marked as having a particular attribute, and they appear to have been sorted into folders while remaining in the inbox. Okay, so now that you're confused, let me try to straighten that out. Let's say you receive a message with some attached photos. The message will go to your inbox, but it will also appear inside a virtual folder called Photos. The same thing happens if you receive a shipping notice from UPS or FedEx, and it'll be interesting to see just how well Outlook.com can differentiate between real shipping notices and those phishing spams we all receive. If you're a fan of various social media and you use Gmail, you probably have a plug-in that allows you to connect to those services. That won't be needed with Outlook because you can view your Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and even Google contacts from the People section of the Outlook.com interface. In addition, you can respond to Twitter status updates or post a message to a friend's Facebook wall. Facebook chat is also available inside Outlook.com. Any files you've stored in SkyDrive will be available, and Outlook.com's calendar seems to work far better than Google's calendar. With the Google calendar, every click is assumed to be a new appointment, and I am constantly closing the new appointment dialog that appears when I accidentally click somewhere on the calendar. Outlook.com just highlights the time you've selected, and then offers an Add button if you really want to add an appointment. To set up your Outlook.com account, you can visit www.outlook.com. There's a link, of course, on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you don't already have a Hotmail account, just create a new account. If you do have a Hotmail account, you can log in and set up a new Outlook.com or Live.com address. 
Bugs are still apparent in many areas, and the feature set will need to be enhanced a bit if Outlook.com is going to be a serious competitor for Google Mail and Google Calendar. But Microsoft has the resources to pull this off, and it looks to me like they're on the right track. If it seems that your computer that was once blazingly fast but now seems to be mired in quicksand, you can restore some of the old performance by identifying what's causing the computer to be slow and then taking actions to speed it up. I'll describe a couple of things you can do today and we'll cover others in future programs. The illustrations that I'll use here are for Windows 7, but most of the processes will work on Vista or Windows 8 and some even work on XP. The names of the various options may vary slightly, but most of what you need to make the improvements will be there. Keep in mind, nothing you do will make the computer any faster than it was when you first brought it home. But over the years, you or applications that you've installed have done things that cause the computer to run slower. First recommendation, add memory. The easiest way to make a computer faster often involves adding memory. If you run so many applications that the system must continuously write information that should remain in memory out to the disk drive, adding more memory will make the computer noticeably faster. On the other hand, if you already have plenty of RAM and swapping isn't an issue, extra memory won't help. Here's how to figure it out. Press Ctrl-Alt-Delete and select Task Manager. Then select the Performance tab and click the Resource Monitor button. When the Resource Monitor opens, select the Memory tab. Leave the Resource Monitor running. Minimize it if you want to or move it to a secondary screen. And just continue working, but check the monitor occasionally. Ideally, you should always see some free memory, which is shown in light blue on the graph line. And the column labeled Hard Faults should be at zero. It won't be most of the time, but ideally that's where it'll be. And that's where it was on my computer on one sleepy Sunday morning when I grabbed the screenshot you'll see in the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Normally though, you will see some hard faults. And when hard faults increase, the system is calling for information that should be in RAM, but has been written out to disk. Memory is a very complex issue, and there's a lot more to performance than just hard faults. But keeping an eye on the hard faults statistic is an easy way to spot problems. My general rule is to consider additional RAM if the resource monitor reports frequent and sustained periods with more than 100 hard faults per second. Another thing you can do to make the computer feel faster is to improve the startup time. How many services and applications start when your computer starts? The desktop computer that I use has 98 active services and 28 applications. In addition, Windows starts 99 services. All of these start when Windows starts. Now, not all of the services are required for Windows to operate, and indeed another 110 services are not started. Most of these on my computer belong to Windows, but others, such as WAMP Apache that runs a web server I can use for local website testing, are needed only occasionally or aren't needed at all. The problem with sorting out what starts, whether it's needed, and if not, how to eliminate it, is far from straightforward. Applications will start if there are shortcuts in the All Users Startup folder. 
in the individual user's startup folder or if they have specific entries in the registry. The system configuration tool can help, but there's a better way. But let's start with the system configuration tool. Click Start, then select Run, type msconfig, msconfig, press Enter. Select the Startup tab, and here you'll see a list of some of the applications that start at boot time. Just some of them. You can disable applications here, but I prefer a more robust utility called Startup Delayer. Several applications have the ability to turn off startup functions, including Crap Cleaner. So, if you already have a tool that you prefer, just go ahead and use it. Startup Delayer provides a comprehensive list of each application's shortcut name, when it will start, its common name, its status, what user it's assigned to, and what company published it. you also find out where it's located on the computer. You'll see that I sorted this list by startup time, and that some of the applications launched when my desktop system boots are delayed by periods ranging from 30 seconds to 35 minutes. Others that I expect to need soon after launch start immediately. For example, I know that I will need Macro Express, and I want it to load when Windows starts, but I also know that I probably won't need it until I launch some other applications. Immediately after starting the computer, I'll be looking at email and possibly a website or two, so Macro Express can wait a few minutes. At the end of the list, 35 minutes after boot, I have the Sun Java Update Scheduler run. This is the task that checks with Oracle to see if a Java update is available, and I don't need that very often. Delays can be set in hours, minutes, and seconds, based on CPU or disk activity, and even launched on specific days. When you find applications that you don't want to start automatically, right-click the application and choose Disable. On Vista machines and above, you'll probably encounter a user access control dialog that will tell you that you need elevated credentials to continue. Simply accept the suggestion to restart Startup Delayer under another account. Startup Delayer is free from R2 Studios in Australia. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There is a premium version available, and for $20 it does add several useful features. Well, there you have my first two ideas for improving your computer's performance. We'll continue this topic next week. Android and iPad applications are normally measured in kilobytes, but the IBM Think app is 431 megabytes. Who would have thought 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago, that a tablet or a phone would be able to run a 431 megabyte application? But today's portable devices can, and if you have an iPad or an Android device, here's one you might want to think about downloading. What I find most interesting is IBM's description. Explore how progress happens with Think for kids, innovators, and forward thinkers. Kids, innovators, forward thinkers. What a great combination. Kids are the original forward thinkers, but by the time they graduate from high school, most of that's been beaten out of them. And that's a pity. Fortunately for all of us, some of the innovators and forward thinkers survive and continue to be innovators and forward thinkers, but only a few. Really, we need more. In describing Think, IBM says, From the very beginning, we've sought to improve the way we live. We've worked to make our world more efficient, accessible, and safe. 
While each leap of progress has required its own intelligence and hard work, many seem to follow a distinct, repeatable pattern. That's more than a little self-serving, but it's a worthwhile objective for any person, school, or corporation. We see how our world behaves, says the introduction, map what we find, understand causes and effects, believe we can create new outcomes, and act to build and improve the systems around us. If you don't have an Android device or an iPhone, you can also view IBM's Think on the web. The app comes from IBM's Think exhibit at one of my favorite locations, Lincoln Center in New York City. In 2011, the New York Times described the setting this way. Anyone walking past Lincoln Center during the last few days and glancing downward at its new access road, Jaffe Drive, would have seen what seems to be a slightly eccentric art installation. A long band of animated color lights would snake across a 123-foot-long wall of LEDs as a digital clock counted backward. Then the band might suddenly twist and wind around itself, erupt into curves, contort into waves, and just as unexpectedly, subside again into temporary linear calm. The New York Times noted that the program is partly corporate public relations and that it highlights IBM's accomplishments over the past 100 years. Quoting, The exhibition is also meant to demonstrate IBM's vision of the world while defining its mission to the public, for it is no longer an office machine company or the maker of the world's best electric typewriter, the Selectric, or the designer of mainframe computers or even the manufacturer of the once ubiquitous IBM PC. The article says the exhibition fails to fulfill its promise and falls short of standards set by exhibitions in IBM's distant past, but still we get a sense of a great corporation exploring the most complex human systems with the most advanced technology, marketing its efforts with graphics and, at the very least, promising us all a brighter future. So, this may not be the answer to all of our questions or the solution to all of our problems, but it's worth the time needed to examine it. Think explores how we can deal with the nation's and the world's most pressing challenges. The downloadable app includes a 10-minute high-definition video that asks, How does progress happen? The Think video decodes the pattern of human progress and shows how technology can improve the world around us. Also included in the app are five interactive modules, Seeing, you can navigate an illustrated timeline documenting our quest to measure the world with increasingly precise tools, Mapping, there you'll discover some of the world's most important maps and explore how they organize complex information. The third section is called Understanding. Interact with models used to untangle and predict behaviors of the world. Fourth is Believing. Listen to leaders of world-changing initiatives explain how they build belief in their systems. And finally, Acting. Travel across a virtual globe to discover some of the most inspiring examples of systemic progress. So, if you have an iPad, iPhone, or Android device, download the app. If not, visit the website. You'll find the journey to be worthwhile, because the overarching question is, how does progress happen? I'll give you a little preview on the TechBiter Worldwide website, where you'll find a 15-minute section by Farid Rafiq Zakaria. He's an Indian-American journalist and author. From 2000 to 2010, he was a columnist for Newsweek and editor of Newsweek International. In 2010, he became editor-at-large at Time, he is also the host of a program on CNN and a frequent commentator and author about issues related to international relations, trade, and American foreign policy. Pretty sharp guy. You'll find links to the downloads on the TechBiter Worldwide website.
In short circuits, Google pays a small fine to close a privacy case. Now, to some companies, $22.5 million would be a lot of money. To Google, it's more like a rounding error. That's the size of the fine Google will pay to the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to close the case in which it was accused of going around privacy settings for those who use Apple's Safari browser. Google had signed a consent decree with the FTC in 2011 in which it pledged not to engage in such practices. Despite the fine, Google doesn't have to admit to any wrongdoing. And although this is the largest penalty ever levied by the FTC, it's worth noting that Google had revenues of more than $12 billion in just the second quarter. Multiply that by approximately four for the full-year figures. So, in terms of cost, it's not much. The real cost will be measured in terms of the company's public image. Google says it wasn't being evil, but merely incompetent. The tracking, according to the company, was accidental. Google has agreed to disable tracking cookies that it placed on computers after stating that it would not place tracking cookies on users' computers, but that won't terminate two other investigations, one by the FTC and another by the European regulators. Both are looking into allegations that Google tweaked its search engine to display its own products ahead of those offered by others. Microsoft hasn't yet sold even one Surface tablet, and they won't be available for a few more months, but TechRadar says the company is also working on the next version. Well, that's probably just about as surprising as learning that automakers are currently working to develop models that will go on sale in 2015. These things happen in business. TechRadar bases the conclusion on the presence of several online advertisements on Microsoft's website for developers to work on a new version of the tablet. There have also been comments posted online saying that the Surface 2 will be the latest in Microsoft's new family of PCs, built to be the ultimate stage for Windows. So what does Microsoft have in mind? One of the postings seems to suggest a need to make the devices water-resistant and to run on alternative energy sources. I did check the calendar, and it's nowhere near April 1st. You'll find the full story on Tech Radar. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. How about that curiosity deal? For those who say the government can't do anything right, well, I got to agree. The thing went from the Earth to Mars, and darn, it landed a minute late. What kind of precision is that? All right, NASA's website has been featuring the first photo sent back from Curiosity on Mars. So far, the most remarkable aspect, at least to me, is the fact that the Martian rover made that 135 million mile journey and landed just one minute behind schedule. The distance between the two planets changes minute by minute because of differences in the two orbits. The average distance is considered to be about 135 million miles, so I don't really know exactly how far Curiosity had to travel. 
Already on the NASA website, there are dozens of images. Some are processed, some are raw. You can download them, look at them yourself, play with them. You'll find one on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a 360-degree full-resolution panorama showing the area around where the rover landed in the Gale Crater on Mars. Doubtless, some conspiracy theory folks will claim that the images are really from an Arizona desert, or maybe one in Nevada. But anyone who enjoys science and technology will marvel at the clarity of these images from Gale Crater. There's a direct link to the NASA Photo Gallery on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I have just one word for you. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.